Micah 7, 1 to 13. How to hold on to hope. What a misery is mine. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, and there is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a bria, the most upright worse than a thorn edge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in the hope for the Lord. I wait for my God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from the sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. And can I just say, it's great now COVID is, is waning that we can all meet together because the Lord tells us, do not give up the habit of meeting together. And I think Zoom can be used in the right places. Teams can be used in the right places. But I know my fellow counselors sometimes are a bit Zoomed and teamed out. And there's nothing better than being face-to-face -face and meeting so we can share and encourage and build up. Agreed. It's great we can pass microphones hand to hand. <laughs> well, 
Well, hello. If you're new here, my name is Ben, and I'm the student pastor on staff, and I have the privilege of closing our series through the book of Micah. And as we've been going through the book of Micah, we've seen that it's a series of messages of judgment, but then messages of hope. And today, we have a really powerful and I hope practical message of how we can hold on to hope in times of crisis. When I say stop, drop, and roll, what do you think of? Does it conjure up, I don't know, primary school lessons or anything like that? Someone from the first uh, service this morning from New Zealand told me that they don't just do stop, drop, and roll. They prepare for volcano eruptions. <laughs> yeah. But uh, either way, whether it's, a, whether it's your clothes catching on fire or a volcano going off, uh, sometimes it's a good principle to teach children uh, pithy and wise ways of responding to moments of crisis. And, and having those little pithy sayings can help us in the heat of the moment to uh, make wise choices and to uh, put out those flames. But in primary school, they don't teach us what to do when your life is on fire. Dropping to the floor and flailing around won't actually solve your problem if it's uh, marital issues or uh, a cancer diagnosis or uh, bankruptcy. But in this message today, Micah, uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord, has a message for us for how we, with God's help, can respond to these crises in our life. In this passage today, God is going to show us through Micah how we can hold on to hope in an ancient way, but I hope we'll see still a very practical and relevant way. As we begin, uh, would you pray with me? Lord, we, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak clearly into our hearts, that you would remind us of who you are, and that you would help us to hold on to you uh, in these difficult times. Amen. Well, in order to hear what the Lord has to teach us, I think it would be helpful for all of us to do some review and uh, to catch up our new friends on uh, who Micah is and what this uh, context is that he's speaking out of. Uh, Micah is an 8th century BC prophet. He's living in the southern kingdom of Judah at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped out. But it's not much better in the southern kingdom of Judah because they're facing both internal crises where they have corrupt leadership and uh, the social fabric is fraying and falling apart. And also externally to this nation, they have the threat of invasion from the global power, the Assyrian Empire. So he's not finding himself in an easy situation. And we see this, if you look with me in your green booklets or in the Red Bibles, at verses 1 to 6. Micah laments the situation. God has come to his people like a, like a vine dresser or a farmer looking for the first fruits of the harvest. Uh, and what is it he's looking, who is it he's looking for? We see in verse 2, it's an upright person. As we saw in last week's sermon, someone who loves uh, mercy, who acts justly, who's going to walk humbly with their God, and he can find no one. Instead, everyone's acting uh, on the principle of survival of the fittest. They're out for themselves. And this isn't just true of uh, the, the average Joe. This is especially true of the leaders. In verses 3 to 4, Micah uh, highlights that uh, the judges and the leaders are not just accepting bribes. They're seeking them out. 
and the powerful are giving them to get the evil desires of their hearts. And then Micah compares them to a thorn hedge, which is a helpful image because they are obstructing justice, and anyone who gets close looking for that justice is going to get ensnared and torn by the thorns. And then we see that it's not just a, uh, a, a systemic problem, but it's also something that's affecting our relationships. And in verse 5, he hones in in a, a crescendo way to the most intimate relationships. The neighbor, the best friend, the spouse. And as we see on the next page, on verse 10, someone asked Micah, where is the Lord your God? Where is the Lord your God? Where is your hope in this situation? For Christians, for believers of every age, our hope has always been in God. Our faith has always been in God. The one who promises that no matter what crisis we find ourselves in, he will deliver us. A hope that one day God will renew the world and make it once again very good. A hope that someday we'll have love that never ends because we'll have eternal life with the Father who knows us completely and loves us. That's the hope. And someone rightfully says to Micah in this situation, where is the Lord? And it's from this disaster that God raises up Micah and speaks then to those in Judah and speaks to us today about how we can hold on to hope in the midst of the crises that we find ourselves in. And how relevant is this? I mean, we could pray for hours for the crises that are happening. We think of the war in Ukraine, the, the gun violence and the shootings in Uvalde and, and other places. We can think of the lingering effects of COVID on individuals and on systems. There's so many things that are out of whack, out of God's design. But it's not just true out there, it's also true in here, isn't it? I mean, a privilege of being a pastor is that you get to pray with people, and I know that many of us are facing situations that are crises, period, no exaggeration. A medical situation where there's just no hope. I mean, how on earth could anything good come from this scenario? A relational breakdown, family estrangement, Someone that you want to be close with, but you're not. We all face these crises. And even if you're not facing a crisis on that level right now, we all face struggles every day that we have to bring to mind when we, when we come to texts like this. Maybe it's a, a, a sin temptation that we just can't win. Maybe it's dissatisfaction with your job or with your station in life. But we bring these things to the Lord. And this passage raises the question for us today, how do we hold on to the Christian hope in a broken world? You know, Christian hope is not like how we use the word hope today in the English language. We have a more wishy-washy. Uh, I know it's term time, so I might say, I hope you do well in your exams. You know, it's more like probability, but uh, Christian hope is different. It is confidence. It is assurance of something that's not yet happened, but it's as it might as well have because you have that much confidence and certitude in it. That is the Christian hope. And Micah is not speaking from the ivory tower of Cambridge or academics. 
And he's not speaking from an ignorant castle of privilege where he doesn't know what we go through. He's speaking out of his own existential crisis as everything, everything is falling apart around him. And that's when we turn to the key verse in this passage, verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. How does Micah say to hold on to hope? It's to watch, to wait, and as we'll see, to worship. To watch, to wait, and to worship. So let's look at watch. So Micah opens verse 7 by saying, I watch in hope for the Lord. He compares himself to a watchman in a tower. But this time, unlike earlier, he's not looking out for the incoming army. He's looking out for God, his Savior, who's bringing salvation. And Micah is saying to us, direct your eyes, lift your gaze. As we sang earlier, behold your God. Well, how do we watch for the Lord? Well, have you ever picked anyone up from the airport? And have you ever picked up somebody you didn't know? Uh, my wife Hope and I uh, in the past have had to arrange a taxi to come pick us up. And in order to meet this new person or for them to meet us, we had to say, this is who we are. This is what we're going to wear. This is where we'll be. And it's the same way with God. We have to know we have to know who he is. We have to know what he's wearing. The Psalms say that God is robed in majesty and armed with strength. The Psalms say that God is clothed with splendor and majesty. But it's not just by these poetic ways of talking about who he is. It's also, and maybe more importantly, knowing his character and looking to his promises. It's remembering his character and looking to his promises. So when we direct our gaze towards God, I'm not saying we'll see him physically, although maybe you can, but instead we're bringing to mind who God is. Now, someone might say, Ben, Ben, isn't watching or thinking about God just a way of ignoring our circumstances, a way of denying the reality that I see around me? To which I would say, no, not at all. Micah is saying that the only person who actually sees life and reality as it is, is the person who takes that situation, takes that view to the Lord. Reminds me of the story in the Old Testament, maybe you know of the prophet Elisha, who one day is in a town that it gets circled by an army that's sent with the one objective of killing him. And his servant wakes up the next morning, looks out the window and sees the army, panics, says, what are we going to do? And this is what Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then God opens up his servant's eyes. He looks out the window again, and this time he sees a vision. It says, he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. And it's the same for us. Yes, it would be foolish to not look at your circumstances, but it would be more foolish to not look to the God who is also there wanting to deliver you from whatever situation it is that you find yourself in. That would be the epitome of foolishness. Watching for the Lord, remembering his, characters, hold, his character, holding on to his promise, that is like putting on a new pair of lenses. 
And I can still remember the first time I put on a pair of glasses. I wear contacts. But the first time I put on glasses, and I looked down, and I could see blades of grass from this height. It was incredible. And maybe some of you have 20-20 vision, but maybe you've gone to the cinema for a 3D movie. You've put on those lenses with the blue and the red. Well, it's the same way. Micah is saying that we need to put on spiritual lenses so that we can see details and dimensions that we didn't even know were there in the first place. That's what it means to watch for the Lord. And let, let me give a, a personal illustration of doing this. Uh, last August, uh, my wife Hope and I um, both got COVID, and it was quite severe. And my wife was 29 weeks pregnant at the time, and after seven days of fever and, and just completely just having to lie out the whole time, we were both hospitalized, uh, but it was much worse for Hope, and she was moved from room to room because her oxygen kept dropping to the point where it got down to 84, which is not good. And at that point, they had to move her into the ICU. This, this is it. This is the, there's nowhere else you can go for help after this. And as she's, as she's in the ICU, this is a time when Hope and I had to watch for the Lord. And the night before the doctors were planning to have to put her on a ventilator and potentially um, bring baby Gwen, uh, we called each other from our different hospital beds. And with the Lord's help, we turned our eyes to him by going to a special passage for us, uh, 1 Peter 1. And I'll just share a little bit of what God reveals about himself in that passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In the midst of a storm with life-changing possibilities, we don't ignore what's happening, but we lift our eyes to see the Lord who is there with us and in it for us. So the first response is to watch, to watch and hope for the Lord. Uh, but uh, that leads us to the next move, which is to wait, to wait. And that's what Micah says in verse 7, I wait for God, my Savior. It's not just enough to think about and remember, well, this is where we start, God's character and promises. We have to move to waiting on him. So what does he mean by waiting? Does he just mean like when we're in queue and we just kind of twiddle our thumbs and we get on our iPhones? Of course not. They didn't have iPhones. <laughs> in Hebrew terminology, uh, words like hope and wait belong in the same semantic range as words like to trust and to believe. Uh, so I, I looked into it, and the word here that's translated wait in the NIV, which is what we use with the Red Bibles, is sometimes translated wait and sometimes translated trust, they overlap. And one commentator says this, that this Hebrew word could be translated, I am resolved to wait for God my Savior to act. Mike is saying that to wait for God is to trust God, to trust his purposes, to trust his timing, to trust his power to save. It's a confidence in saying, my God will hear me, 
even when there's no worldly evidence to that. Which is why Micah in the next verse says, Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. To wait is to trust that God will save. Whether that deliverance happens in this life or if that deliverance comes in the next life when the Lord can fully heal us from whatever ailments we have. Uh, to finish Hope's and My Story in the hospital, with God's help, we endeavored to watch and to trust Him that no matter what the outcome would be, that we would continue to uh, hope in His promises. And that doesn't mean we weren't emotionally distressed, because we were. And I take comfort that in the Gospels, Jesus is sometimes angry and sometimes Jesus is sad. But the key is that we didn't despair because we knew that one way or another, according to God's wisdom, he was going to bring that healing that we so desperately wanted and needed. Well, like watching, waiting can seem passive. Ben, are you telling me that I need to wait for God to fix the environment? Are you telling me that I need to let God fix our society and I should do nothing? No. Micah went to the king, to Hezekiah, and, and implored him to follow after the Lord and made incredible differences and for the next hundred years of that nation. He acted. Waiting is active participation. One theologian put it like this. Micah does not give up and surrender to depression, but waits. The most powerful form of action by the helpless who express in their waiting the knowledge that God comes to them in the form of salvation. Remember Micah's situation. He's in Judah, this small, almost invisible nation. And it's being invaded by the global power of the day. It would have made tons of human sense to despair. It would have made tons of sense to be angry, to rage at God. It may have even made sense to detach, because what's the point? Why even care? But that's not what he does. He chooses to hope, to trust the Lord, even in that scenario. To wait for God, to trust God, is to hope in God. It's a settled confidence. I'll read that quote again. Micah displays the most powerful form of action by the helpless who express in their waiting the knowledge that God comes to them in the form of salvation. And this is freeing because if we do want a better world, if we do care about things like the environment and those on the margins, this sets us free to pursue that. Because if you don't have a hope of substance, if you don't have a grounded reason to believe that things will get better, then we will inevitably believe that all the responsibility is on our backs. And if you don't try hard enough, and if you don't do well enough, and if you're not strategic enough, maybe even ruthless enough, then it's on you for not fixing the scenario, or on us. But if you have a hope that God is acting, then you can, on the one hand, fully participate. Give yourself to it. But simultaneously know that it's not on you. 
but that the Lord will use you and others and his timing and his purposes to achieve it. It sets us free to pursue those things. And there's so many historical examples we could give of this. Um, personally, I love the story of Lord uh, Shaftesbury, who is a 19th century uh, English evangelical um, um, par- uh, and, uh, reformer, but he was in Parliament, and he worked for many, many welfare issues for decades, child labor laws, among others. And at the end of his life, after achieving much good, this is what he says of himself. I do not think that in the last 40 years, I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Every day he held before him the hope, the Christian hope, that God would remake the world. And that didn't keep him passive. That led to a life of action. So we watch and we wait. But although those are good, those are not complete in themselves. We have to go a step further, and that's to worship the Lord. Micah finishes verse 7 by saying, My God will hear me. You know, this final move is to worship God. It's to praise God for who he is and what he's done. And in fact, we haven't even fully watched and waited or known and trusted until we worship. And I think the best illustration of this is uh, honey. Like, we all know right now that honey is sweet. You know that, I know that. But it's very different if someone here had brought in honey in their pocket and you took a little bite of that right now. You would know that sweetness in a way that's infinitely different than the rest of us. And it's the same way with the Lord. We can all sit here and know that the Lord is good, that he's loving, that he's gracious, that he's compassionate, that he's slow to anger, that he is seeking after you with his whole being. We can know that up here. But until it moves down here and forms our affections and our desires, then we're not done yet. Which is why Micah moves to worship. Now, he doesn't use the word worship, but how do I know that's what he's talking about? Well, the first reason is he says, my God will hear me, which means that he's spoken to the Lord. He's prayed to the Lord. He's praised the Lord. But it's also because of what comes after verse 7. I know we didn't read it all. That was on purpose. But in the rest of the chapter, he moves to worship. And if you just look at it with me, I'll go slowly here. Verses 8 to 10 or a psalm, which is like a song, of trust. Verses 11 to 13 is God's promise back to rest of restoration. Verses 14 to 17 is a prayer, God's answer, and the response. And my favorite bit, verses 18 to 20, is a hymn of praise to God. Micah summons his soul to watch and to wait, and then he, almost without perhaps even meaning to, begins to worship the Lord. And there's so many ways in this passage that we could look at how he worships, or what he worships, what he praises. We could look at verses 11 to 12, where Micah praises God as the God who will save the nations. We have this amazing image of God as the good shepherd enlarging the boundaries of his sheepfold, his sheep pen, so that people from all the nations can come in, meaning this community is not all of one nationality because of that. It means that we're not all made up of people who have their life put together. 
In fact, I don't think any, none of you have your life fully together, and that's because he's opened up the sheep pen. Or we could look at how Micah praises God as a God who's faithful to his promises. Look at verse 20. You will be faithful to Jacob. You will show love to Abraham. These are the patriarchs. These are the, some of the first followers in the beginning of the Bible. As you pledged on oath, on promise, on covenant, like a marriage, to our ancestors in days long ago. That's how everything here holds together. How can we, why can we trust God? How do we know his character is the same today? It's because he's faithful to his promises. We can worship him for that. But my favorite bit here is that Micah praises God as a God who delights to show mercy. And this is verses 18 to 19. In verse 18, Micah says, Who is a God like you? Which is a really subtle play off his name, which means who is like Yahweh. Who is a God like Yahweh? And the, the first characteristic, the first essence of God that he points to to back up the claim that no God compares to Yahweh is that he forgives sin and he delights to show mercy. And how do we know that's true? We know that's true because 2,000 years ago, God came in the person of Christ so that he could live the life that we never lived. He could die the death that we should, that we should die for that. And then he could be raised again so that if we've died in Christ by putting our faith in him, we can be raised up again too. So no matter what storm we're going through, we have objective reasons, a foundation to say that even in this, he is for me if I'm willing to accept that free gift. So Micah moves to worship because who is a God? Who's a person like that? But who's a God like this? So like, like Micah, this, this holding on to hope in the midst of the storm isn't denying what's happening around us. It's fully acknowledging it, but it's lifting our eyes to behold the Lord, to see his character, to remember his promises, to trust who he is, with a life of action, and then to worship the Lord as that becomes more and more true to us. Can we pray? Lord, who is a God like you that you would move towards us first, that you would plead our case and that you would forgive us and not just forgive us begrudgingly, but that you would delight to daily forgive us and to welcome us home so that we can have hope in the storm, hope in our crises, so that we might follow after you. And we pray, Lord, that as we hold on to you, that you would hold on to us even tighter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.